Facebook generates high volumes of data at a rapid pace. Druba Bortrakur joined Facebook in 2008 to work on data infrastructure. His early projects at Facebook were around Hadoop, the distributed file system and MapReduce computation platform that laid the foundation for the big data movement. At the time, Facebook was generating as much data as any other startup, and the company needed to stay at the leading edge of scalability techniques for its Hadoop distributed file system cluster. Traditionally, Hadoop managed its file system by synchronizing the coordination of the different data nodes with the help of a single master node. At Facebook, the scale of the data was such that the HDFS cluster had thousands of data nodes, and this was too much volume for a single master node to handle. Druba helped implement redundancy at the master node to create a more resilient system. The early days of the big data movement were focused on batch processing. A company like Facebook would gather large amounts of data into databases and HDFS and run offline analytics workloads to gather reports on an hourly, daily, or weekly basis. Over time, data infrastructure has moved closer to a real-time processing model. Data infrastructure does not only support batch offline reporting, it also supports machine learning jobs that need to be run on a more frequent basis. These jobs have lower latency requirements and have driven the adoption of in-memory stream processing systems like Spark and Flink. Druba joins the show to discuss his time at Facebook building data infrastructure. He takes us through the major projects he worked on, including the early Hadoop infrastructure, the refactoring of online user workloads to be more pull-based than push-based, and the creation of RocksDB, a storage engine he helped create at Facebook. Today, Druba is the CTO and co-founder of Rockset, a company that builds data infrastructure and database APIs on top of RocksDB. Rockset is building infrastructure for modern technology companies, many of which are facing problems that bear significant resemblance to the ones that Facebook encountered as it scaled. We have new apps for iOS and Android. These apps are a great listening experience for software engineering daily. We've spent a lot of time refactoring them and improving them, and they include all 1,000 of our old episodes, including all of our shows about Facebook and its history. You can comment on episodes. You can have discussions with members of the community. I will be commenting on each episode going forward for a while. So if you have some commentary, you have some feedback, you have some thoughts on the shows, I would love to get into a discussion with you. You can jump on the apps or jump on softwaredaily.com to share your thoughts. And if you want to become a paid subscriber to get ad-free episodes, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. Also... Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. Find Collabs is the company I'm building, and we're having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. If you are looking for a collaborator or a co-founder, or you just have a cool project that you want to share with people, and maybe it's open source, maybe it's not, maybe it's about software, maybe it's about music, Whatever it is, you can find people to show it to or work on it with at Find Collabs. With that, let's get on to today's show. Druba Bortakur, you are the CTO at Rockset. You are a longtime engineer at Facebook. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jeff. You joined Facebook in 2008. 
Describe the open source data ecosystem back then. Facebook used quite a few pieces of open source software at the time. I was mostly focused on the big data side of things at the time. So my focus was mostly about Hadoop and Hive and some other related big data technologies. So Facebook became a very big user of Hadoop, which is open source software. And also it became good contributor of code to Hadoop as well as Hive. So the Hive project was an open source project that was actually founded at Facebook. And it was an SQL query engine built on top of Hadoop and became very, very popular over the last 10 years. You've been a committer to the HDFS project for 13 years. Describe how HDFS has matured. Yeah, HDFS has been a very exciting project in my mind. So I started working on the HDFS project, which is the Hadoop file system project. In 2006, I think even before I joined Facebook, I was at Yahoo. And Yahoo was trying to figure out what is the best way to compete with all the search technology that Google was building at the time. And so they decided to build this Hadoop or decided to fund this project called the Hadoop Project. And I was probably the first or second guy inside Yahoo who was a committer to the Hadoop Project at the time. The project started very small. I still remember the first day when there was an intern in the Yahoo search team. And he was the first user of Hadoop. And I was working with him closely to see how he can get some of the search indices built using the Hadoop technology. So I spent my early like a year or two at, at Yahoo building a lot of Hadoop file system stuff. This was a time when probably only like 10 people in the world were using Hadoop or like creating Hadoop software all in Yahoo. And then after that, I moved to Facebook and then Facebook became a very big user of Hadoop. So the team grew from like probably grew up to say a size of 10 within a year or so. All of them doing Hadoop development, Hadoop support setting up clusters and Hadoop, the first Hadoop cluster at Facebook was around 20 nodes, I think. And I remember that time there was the work that, that we were doing with using Hadoop at Facebook. The first piece of work was some reporting uh, software. And that reporting software used to take many, many hours using Oracle. But when we moved to the Hadoop software, it probably took around maybe 20 minutes or so. So people re realized the impact of Hadoop saying that, hey, we can process a lot of data in quite short a time period. So that was exciting. The Facebook Hadoop clusters had tens of petabytes. What kinds of scalability bottlenecks do you hit when you deploy a Hadoop cluster of that scale? Yeah, that was a great question. Like I said, in the beginning, Hadoop was actually designed to scale out, right? So the whole point of Hadoop was that, hey, you can store a lot of data, you can process a lot of data. The focus wasn't on how quickly you can process it, but you can actually process terabytes and petabytes of data. So the design was uh, pretty clear cut when we installed it on, say, like the first pseudo production system. Like I said, it was a 20 node Hadoop cluster. So each node used to have like a one terabyte of disk. So that was like 20 terabytes. That was very big at the time, right? I'm talking about like 2006, probably, or 2007. And then disks became, started to become very big. They became three terabytes per disk and then eight terabytes per disk. And then also Hadoop had the capability to scale out as far as the number of nodes were concerned. At Facebook, I think the largest Hadoop cluster at that time, again, some of these things might have been superseded now, but in the early, around 2010 or 2011, the largest sizes were probably like 
3,000 or 4,000 nodes in the Hadoop cluster, each one of them having maybe eight, uh, like six disks each of eight terabytes each. That's a lot of storage. That's many petabytes of data, which you could process using Hadoop MapReduce jobs. So scalability challenges, um, obviously Hadoop in the early days had a single thing called the name node, which was the Hadoop master node. And that was a scalability challenge because if you have 4,000 nodes, all of them talking to one master node, sometimes the master node doesn't scale very well. So there are a lot of work that we did to kind of offload software work away from the master node to do more on the slaves or do more on secondary node processing and stuff like that. That time, the master node also did not have a replica, which means that if the master died, it was a single point of failure. So it was a problem for scaling to large systems. Very quickly, we built a high availability system for the master node, which means that if the master dies, some secondary name node takes over its work. That was one very basic scalability challenge. The other ones are more about how can you keep, when you have 4,000 nodes or when you have 5,000 nodes, there are always some nodes that need repair, for example, right? Uh, some You need to like replace its disks or you need to fix its memory. So how can you do that in an online system so that the rest of the system can continue to work? And this becomes more and more important when you scale out because if you have two nodes, it's very easy to keep the two nodes up and alive. When you have 4,000 nodes, it's just not possible to keep all 4,000 nodes up and alive all the time. So scalability issues came up where you need to do online repair of systems. There were features that we built into Hadoop called like decommissioning of nodes. You can run some software, you can give a command saying, hey Hadoop, I'm going to remove this node in the next uh, 10 minutes. Please do whatever you need to do to make systems stable enough. So there were some manual commands. Over time, those manual commands became automatic, which means that for an operator, for a hardware operator to run a Hadoop cluster, it became easier and easier. So yeah, there are many scalability challenges at the time. I just spoke about two of them now, but there were plenty more others. When you joined Facebook, you had been in the software industry for several years before Facebook, right. including Yahoo, as you mentioned. Were there unique aspects of Facebook's workloads? Was there something new about the volume of data or the type of data coming into Facebook that was unique compared to what you had seen before? Yeah. How can I categorize it? There's very unique. The most unique part of this data that was coming, that Hadoop was handling or some of these big data systems were handling, were very different from data that other systems were handling previous to the web kind of period, right? So in the earlier days, before I started to work at Hadoop, at Yahoo and Facebook, most people when they talked about data, they thought that data needs, if somebody is generating data, that needs to be stored all the time and you cannot afford to lose any of this data. You cannot have some loss in any of this data, right? That's how Oracle and other systems became very popular in the early days, saying that, hey, if you have data, you need to store it reliably, availability, performance, and all that stuff. For Hadoop, the use case was very different. This was essentially large volumes of data, which was slightly lower in quality, which means that even if you lose 0.1% of the data, it's fine because most of the time you are doing analytics on this data. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So the, the characteristic of this data was very different from previous data that previous generation database systems used to store. So this data were more about click logs. So people, when they go to the Yahoo website or the Facebook website, they click on things and those generate click logs and they need to be stored because these companies, 
they need to mine these click logs and find out what people are doing, what people are more interested in. How can they make their own products better by having a very data-driven decision-making process? To do these decision-making processes, they needed to collect all these data. But then even if a little bit of data gets lost or gets corrupted or gets missing, they don't really care because if you have 99.9% of the remaining data, you can make good analytics decision out of that data. So Hadoop was built for this purpose. A very different system from previous generation database systems. Like I said, it just made things very easy to store large volumes of data. The last decade has been a golden age of data infrastructure projects. So it hasn't just been Hadoop and HDFS. We've seen Kafka and Storm and Spark and Flink and Airflow. There was so much technology that needed to be built to deal with this world of big data. How did you prioritize which areas of infrastructure to focus on within Facebook at a given time? That's a great question. In the, in the beginning part of the Facebook life history, the focus was all about growth, which means that how can you make Facebook software or say the Facebook app be adopted by more and more users? So that was the focus of the company. How can you make 100 million people use Facebook? The focus was more about growing the number of users by adding value to these users' lives. So the focus of data collection was more about how can you improve the product? How can you make the Facebook product better? How, how do you know whether people are looking more at photos or people are looking more at videos, for example, right? Are people doing more of comments on, on your friend's post or are they mostly reading news articles at Facebook? So these kind of decision-making process was very useful to make the Facebook product better. And this is where Hadoop came into the picture saying that, hey, I can actually look at all these analytics and make the Facebook app better and better over time. Even things like how fast are each of these Facebook pages loading on a web browser? At that time, web browsers were quite popular. So we also found using Hadoop that if you can make your page loading 10 times faster, you get 100 times more users into your system. It was amazing to find these things. You could also find clustering of users. How like Can you cluster all the people in the world to find like places where there's not much connection between this cluster of people and that cluster of people? This is the connectivity papers that had kept, that came out after post those analysis. All these analysis were done using data that was collected. And the focus of this data was all about making product better. And towards the later part of Facebook's history uh, when I was there, that focus continued. But then related focus was how can you find like more deep insights into to your users? For example, hey, is this a user who likes sports pages or is it a user who likes a fitness regime. So these kinds of metadata questions, which are even higher level, needed to be built so that you can kind of monetize the product better. So to do those, uh, a lot of processing is required. So the first level, uh, like I said, the first version of the software was built to collect a lot of data and make kind of lightweight predictions and more deterministic predictions. But then the, the next generation of data that got collected and processed needed a lot of CPU also along with storage to be able to find these, these metadata trends, as I call it, things that are hidden in this data, but you need a lot of processing to find these things or find these relationships or find this decision-making process. So the processing kind of changed over time. That's as far as Hadoop is concerned. Other big data change that happened inside Facebook was that in the early days of Hadoop, the data was more about batch analytics. 
which means you run jobs on data that is collected maybe yesterday and you run all your analytics on yesterday's data. That's what I call batch analytics and this is what Hadoop is very good at. But over time, Facebook also started to use a system called Log Device, which is similar to a Kafka system, but it lets you do more real-time analytics, which means that you can actually run algorithms on data that got produced maybe an hour back or maybe 10 minutes back. So it's more about real-time analytics that people have moved on to. And then recently, in the last maybe two, three years before I quit Facebook, that time the focus was more about live analytics, which means that can you run analytics on data that just got produced immediately in the last few minutes or few seconds? So the kind of systems that were built to process live analytics were very different from Hadoop and uh, Kafka-like systems, which were mostly built for batch and real-time analytics in the earlier timeframes. Right. So today, Facebook feels like a completely live application. So I interact with it, and very quickly, the entire application changes its data model in response to my interaction, and it feels seamless. But Back in the day, in 2008, it was not that seamless. It would take a while for your interactions to be reflected in terms of maybe how your feed gets constructed. There was a, a longer delay between an interaction and the, the feedback of the application. But today, machine learning models are clearly working on that data very quickly. Describe some of the engineering difficulties in creating Facebook as a fast data application in contrast to the slower batch application that it was in the past? Oh, yeah. This is a great question again, because I remember very clearly how this transition happened. So in the very early days, the Facebook feed, this is the, this is the things that you see in your Facebook app, they were built as a push system, which means that when I post a message, that message goes to the Facebook backend data engine and then it tries to find out who are the friends that you're connected with and then post this message to your friends right then and there right and then it doesn't matter whether your friends are logged in or not they just post it to some queues that are waiting so as soon as your friend logs in you can see those posts so it's kind of a push-based system essentially the processing happens when you post new data or when new content is created this is what I mean by more like a, a real-time system where things happen when new data gets created, right? But then this process doesn't scale out and it gives you hiccups essentially when this queue, the pending queue that you, that you produced is long and when some user logs in, he has to drain this queue before he sees the most recent items that his friends posted because those are at the bottom of, the, of your queue. So over time, Facebook moved to a more live system, which means that when somebody posts a message, it just gets deposited in a database. It doesn't get posted to any of your friend's queues. It just gets posted to a database. And when a friend logs in, at that time, a query is made to all these databases saying, tell me the latest things that all my friends have done and then rank them online. So this is what I mean by a live system where it's more like a pull-based system now. It's, it's kind of the processing is happening when it's time to read the data, when people need to access information, not at the time when this data was created. You see the difference between these two models? Of course. Yeah, the earlier version was more push-based. When new data arrives, you do a lot of processing and keep it ready so that when somebody needs it, it's ready for him. That's more like a streaming real-time system that, that people are familiar with now. 
but that system doesn't scale and it gives you a little bit stale data when there's a lot of writes coming into your system, right? And also you do a lot of processing that goes waste because if none of your friends are logged in, there's no need to build queues for them because they will never log in for the next seven days, right? And so the queue that you have built is all wastage of, of compute and resources. Whereas when you move to a more pool-based system, which is a live system where the newsfeed, the Facebook newsfeed gets generated when somebody logs in. So when somebody logs in, you make a query to all your data sources. And at that time, you rank them online within a few milliseconds, sort them, get some relevance, run some user coefficient algorithms to figure out which posts are relevant to the user, and then show them this at the time of, of when they're refreshing their feed, for example. So these two models, so this, the pool-based model really let Facebook data be very live, which means that the moment you go to your page, you see the most relevant things that are posted by your friends within the last few seconds or maybe five seconds. So that really helped get engagement up because people love to see things that happen immediately. It's more like a messaging system now rather than a static uh, web page system that was there in the earlier, earlier days. You have as much experience in data infrastructure, modern data infrastructure, as as anybody I've spoken to. Do you think that all batch systems will eventually be replaced by streaming systems? That's a great question again, because I think a lot of systems will remain as batch systems because there are certain reporting things that you need to do. Let's say you're a big enterprise and you are trying to find the total revenue you made in the last one day, last seven days, last six months or your quarter, right? So those are reports that need to be generated every day or every week or every quarter or every year. So there is no reason to make those real time because those are fixed schedules. They are based on some certain schedules that you need to do reporting on. So those I think will remain as batch systems for the lifetime of these things because Batch systems are definitely much cheaper for, re, for from resources perspective compared to real-time systems, right? So now, but there are other things that are becoming more real-time. For example, you need personalization, right? You Somebody walks into a store and you want to show him advertisements when he walks into a store. You cannot have a pre-canned list of advertisements because you want to personalize those advertisements based on the person's profile, for example, right? So there are a lot of things that have moved into real-time systems in the recent past, and I think this trend will continue, but I never see, I don't think the bad systems will ever go away because they can process a lot of data with very few resources compared to real-time systems. But again, I think real-time systems is just kind of the middle ground. I also think that a lot of systems will move to more live systems, which is the next generation of analytics in my mind. So batch analytics, real-time analytics, and live analytics. And live analytics is, is the stuff that what the Facebook newsfeed does, for example, where there's nothing streaming going on. It's just when, when something needs to be displayed or, or somebody needs access to this information, you create this information on the fly by querying all your raw data sources and provide him a decision based on the data you have. So yeah, I think it's just a natural progression of events. I don't think any of these things will ever go away. There will be batch analytics, there will be real-time analytics, and then there will be live analytics because the cost of your system increases when you go from one range to the other. So nothing, not everything will get converted from one system to the other, in my mind. You were the founding engineer of the RocksDB project at Facebook. 
tell me what that was like. Did you start RocksDB as a side project or did you just jump into it full time because you knew this was going to be really important? So yeah, it, actually this question also touches a little bit on the Facebook culture at the time. So the Facebook culture at the time was it enabled the engineers to try something new and it created a model where you can try different ideas and you can fail fast, which means you try something, if it doesn't work, it is not a bad blot on your career. It is a great thing to try something and fail. If you try something and succeed, that's great too. But if you try five things and four of them fails, that's fine. It's no, nobody's going to come and say, hey, you are a bad engineer You're working on useless stuff, right? So the culture of Facebook really played a part here, I feel. So Facebook had a lot of data on disk storage systems at the time. And then just around 2010 or 11, 2011, Facebook moved a lot of their online data systems to flash storage. So when they moved to flash storage, the, the question that came up in my mind as well as some other people in the team was that, hey, for flash storage, if we continue to use existing data software systems, is it an optimal use of flash? And so this is where we started the RocksDB project. We said that, hey, is there a better way for us to optimize this flash hardware by writing new piece of uh, software rather than using traditional B trees or traditional like tree structures, which are essentially random write structures for a data store. So we started the RocksDB project. And the first use case again was, I started this project and then there was one more person who came into my team because he also thought that, oh yeah, this is a good, exciting project. Let me try my hand on it for some time. So we tried this and there was a use case where we built a backend system which was indexing a lot of Facebook data because data was stored in a certain way in the MySQL databases and then we needed to build a secondary index on this data so that you can find the same piece of data using some other indexing uh, columns. For example, let's say let's say you store photos based on the user, right? So if you so the index is on user, and use, if you have the user ID, it's very easy to find the photos that that user published. But now somebody might want to find all the photos taken in the Golden Gate Bridge, right? So now you needed to build an index where the key is the Golden Gate Bridge, and it will have a long list of photos hanging off that in the database. So that's a secondary index. So RocksDB was kind of built, was used, the first use case was used to build a secondary index on your data so you can find these other things in our data very efficiently from uh, from a different when the queries are from a different dimension like places or locations or time or stuff like that and then i found that it became very popular because it was very easy to use so a lot of engineers adopted this without much uh, trouble and uh, the use cases were very different there was a use case which was used which was using rocksdb to publish data to notifications to facebook mobile phones for example later that was used for, that was a data system built using RocksDB interface. Then there was a coefficient tier, which is essentially finding the relationship or the closeness between two Facebook users using a machine learning or a, or a rule-based engine. And that needed to process a lot of data and that was data stored in RocksDB. So it basically proliferated in like five different use cases, which are very different from one another. And at that time, I think we realized that, hey, this is good technology that's really useful for a large set of things. You're now the co-founder of Rockset. You went from creating RocksDB within Facebook to eventually having an idea for how to productize it. How did your time at Facebook inform the goals of the company that you ended up starting? At, at Facebook, I had the opportunity to look at these data systems from very close by 
and I saw that hey, RocksDB is actually used inside Facebook to learn to to run a lot of machine learning models on large data sets. It's more so RocksDB was not used to build these models, but RocksDB was used to serve these models. Like I explained, uh, if there is a rule-based mechanism to find the closeness of two users, when a user logs in, it's good to find out who are his most closest friends by using this relevance mechanism. And that needed to process a lot of data quickly. So that was a RocksDB database. So that those kind of use cases really kind of influenced my decision, my my thinking that, hey, this is a technology that we can help people, users outside of Facebook. And that's what motivated us to build this company called Rockset. So Rockset, the backend technology is very much a RocksDB data store, but it has an SQL interface to it. So you can actually serve a lot of your models or evaluate a lot of your models on large data sets, which get stored in RocksDB internally, but you can use SQL to interact with this system. And so a lot of developers, what we are finding is that a lot of developers like this system because they get the best of best of performance as offered by RocksDB on Flash and RAM systems. But they also can use SQL, which is kind of a well-known language and easy to learn and adopt. And they find it comfortable saying that, hey, I don't have to learn some new technology. I can leverage new technology using traditional systems like SQL and make my model serving easier. So that's how I think our, our current set of users are actually leveraging the power of RocksDB using Rockset technology. Dhruba Borthakur, thank you for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's been fun talking to you. Hey, thank you. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Wow.